Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you here at the end of another week for another weekly market recap with my good friend, portfolio manager Lance Roberts. Hey, Lance, how you doing? I'm fine. It's Friday. Get ready for the weekend. Yeah, well, you got your red shirt on, and yeah. I'm going to out you a little bit here. When we hopped on to record, you were sitting there strumming a guitar like every good Texan cowboy should be doing. Exactly right. So <laughs> what you do on a Friday on the range. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Well, maybe we'll have you do a little musical interlude coming into no, one of these uh, yeah. videos in the no, future. We no, we won't do that. <laughs> hey, I got a lot for you here, including, I think, an interesting topic. Uh, not not a rant necessarily, um, but hopefully we get we get time for that. But um, it's, it's kind of a, it has to do with stoicism. And we'll get into that later if there's time. But uh, in, in the spirit uh, of that mindset, I just want to say it's nice to end the week, especially a little bit of a rough week, uh, with a good friend to have a good discussion. So I'm glad you're here to join me. I appreciate that very much. I feel the same way. All right. Thanks. All right. Well, look, let's jump right in here. Um, love to get your thoughts on the week. Um, just setting up the context. Uh, the week was really a V-shaped week. Uh, we kind of Kind of fell into the midweek and then things came roaring back uh, on Thursday. Um, Friday looks like it's protecting most of those gains. So um, uh, I guess we are now in that part of the market cycle where the earnings reports are starting to come in and the market at least doesn't seem to be hating yet what it's hearing, although I think there's a lot of variety all over the board. I know tech has done in general quite well, others parts of the economy not so well. What's your assessment coming into this this week of reversals? Well, first of all, so we got sell signals early in the week. Um, and we had reduced some risk last week because of that. And now the market kind of sold off going into Wednesday, of course, then Thursday and Friday. Big, big rally days because of technology stocks coming in with not so terrible earnings. And that was really the, the theme of the week, which is not as terrible as expected was what was going on with earnings. Um, but you got to keep this in mind. Earnings for the first quarter in May of last year were $225 a share per earnings. They're now down to 171. So you've had a $50 increase, uh, sorry, a $50 decrease in earnings expectations. So yeah, companies are beating estimates because we lowered the bar. Again, this is why I call it millennial earnings season. Everybody gets a trophy. Um, but the good news was is that mega cap stocks, Microsoft, uh, Google, Amazon, all beat estimates. Uh, Amazon was down a little bit on Friday, but it was up big on Thursday. It was up almost 5% on Thursday. It gave up about half that gain on Friday. Um, well, it, can we just talk about that for a second? Because uh, in after hours initially, Amazon roared higher. It was up like yeah. 5% for the day on Thursday, you said, but then it roared like, I'm going to say like 12% or something like that yeah. after hours. After and hours. All of that back overnight. Yeah, well, and again, you never can look after hours. There, there's like four people that trade that. So right. you know, right? Uh, it, my hours, point though is that I, I think yeah. it, it was reacting. You had the print of the earnings right. release, but then you had the guidance being given in the earnings call that the market decided didn't think was as rosy as just the print itself. It, no, that's exactly right. And again, it's very thinly traded, so that you can have these very outsized moves. Is my point. Uh, but yeah, the, the AWS revenue, their cloud services revenue was weaker than, and the guidance really, it was really more about the guidance, wasn't as strong as they wanted. 
Uh, the other problem that, that Amazon had was they didn't use the word AI 35 times in their earnings announcement like Google and Microsoft did. So, um, you know, we are now have moved, you know, into the dot-com era where if you want to have good earnings bump on your earnings, throw AI into your, you know, announcement. I know you're a food company or you're, you're a drug company like Procter & Gamble. Just throw some AI in there. It'll help boost the stock a bit. Yeah, um, God, I'm trying to remember there were... Tons of examples back in 2001 where companies were just adding .com at the end of their name, even if they had nothing to do with the internet to watch their uh, their market values leap as a result. Um, I'm trying right. to remember, but there was a there was like a like a like a Subway sandwich. It wasn't even a chain. It was just like a store in New Jersey that got some ridiculous valuation a couple of years ago. And I can't remember was it crypto? Or there was something that they yeah, kind of tied onto their name, and then the yeah, bank, they, you know. yeah, and they they did that, and and yeah, and, and of course now they're under investigation. So right. that's, yeah. that's a whole different story. Not, but, not really a winning strategy. Yeah. Yeah. No, but you know it's interesting though, right? You know, because two, you know, during the 2020, 2021, it was all about the metaverse, right? Everybody had to be in the metaverse and. <laughs> Uh, Meta, you know, Facebook changed their name to, to Meta because it's all we have. Meta, Meta is now is gone Meta. away. Yeah, it's it's dead. Um, Meta is dead. So, yeah, and, and again, you know, and, and Meta's announcement, you know, they they came out and announced earnings. Stock had a big jump on their earnings announcement, uh, mostly due to the cost cutting. But you know, they're they're going to dump another three billion a quarter into the metaverse, and, and that's really kind of old old news now. It's really all AI, you know, AI is now going to be the next revolution. We'll see if that's really going to be the case, but that's what the market's kind of latching onto. Okay. And, and you may know this off the top of your head. I read a headline for this morning, yesterday. I can't remember the exact details, but it was something like Facebook's revenues or maybe like, this could be wrong. I want to say like only 75% of where they were a couple of years ago. I don't know if the revenues are actually down, but but basically the the... the Market value to revenue right now is is more distorted than it was a couple of years back when yeah, we thought no, the it, stock could be really expensive. Yeah, no, and and look, you know, Meta's cheap. Uh, uh, you know, we talked about this before last year. You know, Meta, you know, tr was trading pretty cheaply last year, so you know, it's it's rallying on basically, you know, you know, things are a little bit better, and they're doing a lot of cost cutting, so people are chasing that stock, but really. It's more than it's not really people chasing value. If you take a look at the breadth of the market, the breadth of the market is more narrow now. It's as narrow as now as it was back in 1999. Um, you've got a very few number of stocks that are actually leading this market higher. More importantly, it's mostly the mega caps. And let me give a good example of this. Okay, here's two companies. One company A um, has not grown sales in five years. It's been advancing very sharply this year. It's had just great returns this year. Um, it's price to sales is nine times earnings. Um, do you want to own that company or would you rather own a company that trades at a 0.29 times price to sales, grows their sales every year and trades at a deep discount to fair value? Right. Who wouldn't, right? Yeah. Pick number two. Okay. Yeah. The difference between that is McDonald's and CVS. McDonald's is trading like a tech stock at nine times sales and hasn't grown its earnings or, or revenues in five years. CVS is growing their revenue and earnings every year, trades at a 0.29 times uh, sales with a 3.5% dividend. You should want to buy CVS all day long, but that's not what people are doing. They're buying the stocks that are in the top market cap weighting of the index. And it's basically just money hiding there. You know, the hedge funds, mutual funds, pension fund managers, et cetera, they've got to be allocated to the market because the market's going up. But how do you do that? You put it into the highly most liquid, biggest market cap name. So I get it's easy in, easy out. 
And so that's why we're seeing this rush. It's this FOMO right now to get into these companies, to get money allocated um, because those stocks are going up and the markets are, are going higher. Okay. And I, I do, I did just pull up the chart here of um, Meta stock. Yeah. It's up 150% uh, yeah. since November. I do want to give you credit because you were saying back then, hey, it's actually relatively yeah. cheap. And I know those words were hard to come out of your mouth about a FANG stock, um, <laughs> but that did prove to be pretty correct at this point in time. Yeah. Is it a good value at these prices? I think we can make a lot of arguments, probably not, but no. you know, uh, it's a good it, example of like, what yeah, you were just it, talking about. Yeah, it was then, but it's not now. But there's a, there's a lot of good companies right now that are, that are trading at a nice discount to fair value, but nobody wants to own those. Everybody wants to chase the stocks that are too expensive and going up, right? We're just right. chasing. They're not the sexy growth, which is what the rotation's going into right now, right? No, it's it's even companies like Procter and Gamble, McDonald's, Coke. Um, you know, these it's it's these big blue chip names that everybody knows. They're not cheap and they're not value, but that doesn't mean that money flows aren't going into them because they are. And and is this you you said earlier about kind of hedge funds hiding out and whatnot? Like I, I remember back in in my early days working in the, you know, in the internet, um, one of the challenges that we had going out to advertisers to get them to advertise online was resistance because it was sort of a new medium. And, and a common line was, hey, look, nobody ever got fired for putting an ad in the Wall Street Journal, right? Where it was right. sort of like, you know, hey, yeah, maybe it's stodgy and whatever, but my boss isn't going to fire me for making that that decision. Is that a little bit like, hey, my until it crashes, my shareholders aren't going to complain about me being in these 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 big name, you know, stocks, whether they're really the right value or not, who knows. But in in in, in less than until they crack, I'm not going to get in trouble for hiding out in them. Well, no, well, it's it's kind of that, but it's also just simply the function that most mutual funds, hedge funds, pension funds, they have to be fully allocated to some degree. Right. Um, you know, mutual fund has to have 95% of its assets invested because they can't bill you on cash. So there, there's this need to be invested. Then there's also the need that when I put out my report at the end of the quarter, I better own all those stocks that were going up, right? Mm -hmm. if, and, and again, then the other thing is just simply performance chasing. If I'm not generating performance, then money's going to leave and go somewhere else that is. So, you know, this is this is always that tug of war between what we call logic. And it's like, well, this doesn't make any sense. And yet markets are going up and they're going up fairly rapidly right now because and really ever since October, this market's been in a nice bullish trend. And that kind of defies all the logic that everybody talks about. It's like, oh, we're having a recession and this and that and the other thing. But yet stocks keep kind of climbing this wall of worry. And that's because there's a tremendous amount of money sitting there that's got to be invested. And everybody was kind of out of the market for the most part in the first half of last year. And as the market keeps going up, it keeps dragging more and more buyers back into the market reluctantly, right? They're, yeah. not, they're not excited about getting into markets, but they've got to be invested because if they don't generate returns, they lose their job. So can we just talk about that just for a second? Sure. Um, so when, when people ask me about the financial advisors that Wealthhood endorses, your firm, the guys at New Harbor, one of the things I tell them is, is like... Um, one of the reasons why we endorse you guys is is you have the uh, the competence to be in cash when you think that's the right time to be there in cash. And that's very hard for a capital manager, as you're saying, not just for financial advisors, but for a fund manager as well, because they think, well, my clients could be in cash on their own without me, right? So I've got to actually 
deploy that money into something? And I say, no, <laughs> you know, you're, you're paying them for the wisdom of when to be in cash and when not to be right. right. And, and, you know, you guys show there's a Stripe of financial advisor that does that, but I don't really see that on the money manager side of things, the institutional fund side of things. And I wonder like, why is that? Like, why don't we have a, a mentality that says, no, no, like there are times where I'm running a hedge fund, but I might go to 20, 30% cash because there's nothing good to buy in our sectors right now. Right. Well, there's that first SEC leads exchange commission, um, which regulates money managers, financial advisors, et cetera. If they come in and do an audit and I have a whole bunch of cash sitting on the sidelines doing nothing, it doesn't matter what I think, right? If I have a whole bunch of cash just sitting there, I can get penalized by the regulator for having too much cash because theoretically over the long-term markets always go up. So I'm not doing my clients a service by not having that money invested. And I can be penalized for that, um, you know, by the by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Also, the other side of that is is that, you know, how does that now? If I have a good excuse, right? It, the you know, our model says this, and this is what the market's doing, and we're, we're we have this money sitting in cash for this reason. You know, I can explain this, but if if it's not part of my investment policy to hold a lot of cash, there is a, there, and and again, this is why most mutual funds and things like that they have a policy that says 95% of that money has to be invested because if I'm billing the client on cash, the, the SEC will say, you're not being a good fiduciary to your client. You've got them in cash. The cash is earning money market interest and you're billing them on something you're not doing any work on. So there is a, there is a push by regulators to get into the markets. The other side of this is also what we call career risk to financial advisors. And it all sounds great, fine and dandy, because you know you talk to people, and, and you know right now in the market there's a lot of turmoil, a lot of uncertainty, and so go. Well, I, I don't want to get in the markets right now. I just kind of want to be in cash. Well, that's that's fine. Got no problem with that. We're going to be in cash right now as well. But once I begin to underperform that market, and you know maybe it's not six months from now, maybe it's not the end of this year, but come next year, if I'm grossly lagging the markets, clients are going to start going. You know. There's this other advisor over here that beat the market last year and he's killing it, blah, 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 and or whatever it is. And it's going to be you know, no matter what people say, right? People say this all the time. Oh, I'm super conservative or I'm super aggressive. And then when things don't go whatever way it is the market's going, they want that, right? People tell me all the time, it's like, I just want a 4% return. As soon as the market does 10, they go, why do I not have 10, right? Yeah. So. Psychology is also the big problem. That's a big career risk for advisors to hold cash, which is why they don't do it. Yeah, I, I, I totally get that. Though, of course, you know, uh, if, if if you're a, a, a fund manager who becomes more conservative at the right time to be conservative, and the markets yeah. plunge, and your fund is relatively outperforming all the rest, then there's the career bump of everybody saying, "I want that too." So, where, where I'm going with this is just. And I wasn't expecting to get into this discussion, but it's interesting, which is, do you think that that policy of 95% allocation all the time is an intelligent one? Or do we want to put other types of structures in place that maybe says like, okay, yeah, so when you go to cash, you make less money on the part that's in cash, but you're making that decision because you think it's the right decision in the long run for the, the, the future yeah. full portfolio return. 
Yeah, no, no, that's not, that, that is our philosophy, right? That is how we work and it's how we lay it out for our clients too. Oh, no, no, I know it's how you work. I'm saying right. the street. <laughs> but, but right, but you, you got to remember for the street as a whole, their job is to charge an asset management fee, right? So there's no real incentive for them to be in cash because here's the argument from the SEC. So, you know, here's my risk as an advisor. So as an advisor, we have a policy that says, we're going to do these things, right? We're going to, we're going to underweight cash and we're going to overweight equities at certain times or whatever it is. And I can actually, I run a risk of getting in trouble with the SEC for underperformance and, you know, for making these decisions. I am better off in terms of regulatory, the regulatory environment of just when a client shows up, putting all their money into an S&P index fund and saying, you're going to be fine. And this is why buy and hold is such a big thing in the industry. You're going to be fine because over the next 40 years, markets are going to trend higher. So once I start doing anything other than an index-based investment, I run risk of regulatory issues with the SEC, potentially. I'm not saying absolutely, but there's a potential risk that if I'm billing a client for providing a service and I'm grossly lagging the market and wonder, or I'm taking on a whole lot of risk to try to beat the market, and that is outside the client's risk tolerance, their knowledge base, those type of things, I run a risk. I'm better off with the SEC of just being an index fund investor and staying that way. Yeah, I get that. that that's almost yeah, yeah. like my example of uh, buying that in the Wall Street Journal and I don't get fired. My, my question is, is, and then we'll move on, but like yeah. you're head of the SEC, you can make decisions by fiat. I'm granting you full authority. <laughs> Would you have these same regulations, or would you have more provisions in there to allow these guys to take more chips off the table when they felt it was necessary? It, it's it's a fine slope because that opens up a whole lot of other problems, um, you know, on the regulatory environment. The reason the regulatory environment runs the way it does is because history says that the safest path for investors is just to invest in the markets and leave it alone. That's That's what history says. And so once you start deviating from that structure, you're taking on inherent risk with capital, which may be a benefit or not to the client. And remember, I'm a fiduciary. So my job is to do the best thing I can for our clients all the time. That's what a fiduciary does. But when you're a big mutual fund, you're managing hundreds of billions of dollars or you know, literally like some of these funds do, it is very difficult to be going a whole lot into cash or going a whole lot in equities because you're moving markets at that point. You know, think about a Vanguard S&P 500 index fund trying to, you know, hold 40% cash while the index is going down and trying to get back into the market. You know, they're, they're going to move that market in one direction or the other and, and because they're making markets at the same time. So it's not efficient for them to do that as well. All right. That point is, is interesting. All right. So folks, sorry for the tangent here. Hopefully you found this kind of an interesting discussion. Um, and it's interesting because I thought for initially you were going to be like, oh, yeah, they totally should have, you know, incentives to go to safety when they think it's right and whatnot. But it sounds like it is more complex than that. It, it really is. Look, and, and look, there's a lot of great managers out there that, you know, raise cash and, and do the right things. And then there's, you know, um, you know, back in 2008, you know, uh, uh, the Husband funds, right? You know, John Husband, uh, one of the most brilliant guys on, the, on, on Wall Street, right? If you read his work, he's phenomenally you know, great. And, you know, his fund, you know, grossly outperformed the markets in 2008. And then he lagged for the last, you know, nine, 10 years because he's been very conservative, hedged. Right. He missed the turn. Yeah. And, and missed the turn. And, and that's, and that's grossly penalized him. And, and again, you know, it's, you know, this is the, the client's 
problem, right? This is at the end of the day, it's the client's issue because they say, you know, they go, I want ultra be to ultra conservative. I think this is going to happen. And this, this actually goes right into the article I just posted today. I've been promising you I was going to post this article on conviction and I posted it today on the website. Um, but, you know, it's talking about you have, you know, when people have these ideas about a certain thing, you know, we were all talking about bricks, right? You know, everybody needs to invest in the bricks back in 2008. And, you know, being convicted to the idea that emerging markets were going to outperform the rest of the, of the world has been a terrible investment. Um, you know, and so it's important to understand, you know, what markets are doing. And then we have to, to set aside those convictions and say, I'm convicted to the idea that valuations are expensive and markets are going to have a zero rate of return, whatever your conviction is. But that's not happening. I, I've got to do this over here because that's what markets are doing. And, and that's that's the challenge that that asset managers have to deal with. I don't like the markets now the way they are, but they're going up. So I have to be aware of that. All right. Well, look, um, we're going to get to your conviction point uh, in just a few minutes here, Lance. I've, I've got the article already printed out here. Uh, you make some really great, um, provide some really great sort of just investing axioms that are kind of timeless at the end. I want to make sure you get a chance to dial through those. Real quick, though, let's go back to some recent data here, um, just so you know, we can set the full table here. Sure. Um, we did get some new data this week, um, new inflation data, specifically PCE. Uh, uh, the readings have come in showing that it's still kind of stubborn, still at this yep. point in time. Um, course PCE, which is what the Fed looks most closely at, remained flat at 4.6%, right? Um, so it didn't go up. Okay, that's good, but it didn't go down either. It's still at 4.6%. That's nowhere near where the Fed wants it to be, down in the 2% range. Um, services inflation X shelter. Uh, is uh, stubbornly not decreasing here, right. and that's that's important because we we shelter makes up such a big uh, part of the CPI calculation, which is the one that everybody all the media looks at. Um, and you know we say, okay, well look, that's a lagging indicator, and real time data shows that housing is coming down, so we can you know we we can kind of have confidence that that's going to come down as time goes on. But if you strip it out, which this reading does it shows that inflation has really not been coming down over the past couple of months, right? Yeah. And so in services are what, like 80% uh, of uh, the consumer spending part of GDP. Yes. So um, so that that's that's very material, right? You combine that with this tweet from Nick Timros, who is you know looked at as the mouthpiece of the Fed. Um, if you're looking at the Fed's favorite metric uh, for unemployment, uh, it's still looking uh, really pretty hot. Um, uh, wages and salaries for private sector workers, excluding incentive paid occupations, uh, showed no meaningful deceleration in Q1. Uh, it's still up 1.5% quarter over quarter, which is the highest reading on record um, after the 1.6% gain in Q1 of last year. Uh, it's up 5% year over year. Um, so you, you take these together, right? You take, oh, sorry, one, one last data point, the University of Michigan inflation expectations data came out, that jumped as well. So you take these sort of high and stubborn inflation readings, some of them increasing in certain cases, um, with the uh, stubborn and, and still high employment data, strong employment data. Again, you and I have talked about this, Lance, but for folks that are expecting the Fed to pivot, you know, this type of data says to the Fed, no, you got to keep 
you got to keep your pedal to the floor here because everything you're doing to destroy demand is still not getting reflected in the key metrics that you're trying to move here, right? And and uh, the latest um, CME FedWatch tool, um, you and I were talking about this last week, Lance, about how within the span of about a month, it had shifted the pivot from, I think, initially June of this year to September. Now it's pricing in the pivot in December. Right. Right. So the, you know, the, the, the market's expectations are fast shifting here in the pivot side of things. So you and I have been saying for a long time, Fed is probably not going to pivot that disconnect between market expectations and what the Fed is saying was going to have to resolve. It is looking now like it's beginning to resolve the way you and I have been thinking. Although curiously, with the pivot getting pushed out pretty substantially over the past couple of weeks, um, markets haven't repriced downwards as a result of that. I find that really interesting. Well, the, the markets are now shifting their focus to, again, uh, first of all, just, you know, I, I wouldn't get too excited about the last couple of days. It's, you know, again, earnings aren't as terrible as everybody expected. Um, analysts are starting to ratchet up Q2, Q3, Q4 estimates already. Uh, all those have risen by about 3% over the last week. So they're, they're already starting to have, you know, stronger expectations of growth in earnings. So in other words, uh, the the quarter one will be the trough in earnings, and they will be in growing from here again. So that's what Wall Street expects right now. Uh, they're also looking at that GDP report, which came in at 1.1%, but spending was still strong. Now, you, you know, you got to look at that two ways. First of all, retail consumer spending declined by 35% from the fourth quarter, but it was still positive. It was still positive 2.7% or 2.2%, I believe. Um in, in the first quarter. So you had a fairly sharp contraction in spending, but still positive. So there's no real evidence right now that the consumers really hit the ropes yet, you know, to any great degree. We are seeing the link, credit card delinquencies and loan delinquencies uh, for consumers starting to rise, but that really hasn't fed through the credit market yet. Uh, there's really no stress of any sort in the credit markets. Um, so, you know, when you take a look at that combined with employment, which still, you know, looks pretty strong here, there's not a lot, to your point, there's no real reason for the Fed to start cutting rates anytime soon. In fact, you know, I think there's probably a reasonable expectation that we could hear some fairly hawkish language next week from the Fed when they do hike rates by 25 basis points. I think you may see some talk about that. We may have to hike one more time before we're done. All right. And that's a good reminder to folks that we do have the Fed's next meeting next week. So when Lance and I are back on, you know, next weekend, we'll have all the results from that that will be, you know, decomposing. And by, and by the 5th of May, which is next Friday, we'll have 87% of the S&P 500 will have reported also. But, you know, there were some, there's some interesting reports in that. I mean, UPS and um, the packaging group, I mean, they had terrible earnings, um, you know, talking about, you know, the amount of shipments are slowing down and uh, movement of transportation is, is slowing down. So, you know, there are certainly some reports out there that suggest the economy is slowing down a lot more than it looks like. But again, it just hasn't fed through the headlines yet. Yeah. And and so interesting, let's combine that, right? So uh, the, the shipping companies, they are a great leading indicator uh, into what the economy is going to do because they, they are like, those packages are like the red blood cells going through the circulatory system, right? You know, they can tell us if more or less are flowing and they're saying less are flowing, right? Right. And then kind of the, the digital equivalent of that, because so much of the economy is now digital, is these cloud computing 
forecasts, right? So that when Amazon is saying, hey, we think that our you know, AWS cloud services are not going to grow as much, um, that's sort of another side. It's, it's, it's like a twin indicator, right? No, that's that's a there's a little difference there. Um, and, and and let me let me kind of break this up into two two components. So when you talk about shipping, yes, that's absolutely correct. Because they count how many boxes did you put on a truck or a train or whatever, right? So we're talking about volume of shipment. We don't really talk about the cost of shipping, we talk about the volume of shipping. And and so you know, the problem with the cloud services is that they may say, well, we're expecting our revenue to only grow by, you know, 8% rather than 12%, right? So you go, okay, well, right there, right? Less people using cloud services. That's not really what that's saying. What they're saying is, is that there's so much, there's increasing competition in that space and there's more choices for people to make. I'm, not, I'm only going to store data in one place. I'm going to store it at Amazon or Microsoft or company BCD, whatever, right? So, you know, as more competition comes online, prices for storage come down just like anything else. So they've got to sell more storage at a lower cost to try to keep that revenue growth. So it's a little different in, in, from that standpoint of saying shipping, I think shipping is a better economic indicator because again, we talk about volume there. We don't talk about the volume of storage, we talk about cost. So that's kind of two different metrics. Okay, that, that's good. To, okay, so I was I was trying to munge them together. You're saying they're they're not quite apples and apples. Yeah, Maybe not kind of apples weird. and oranges, but like apples yeah. and an apple orange hybrid. Got it. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, look, there's um there is a chart that I just wanted to bring up here. I got a few other data points I want to go through. Oh, real quick. Um, so uh, you talked about uh, you mentioned GDP real quickly. So yeah. we have been talking for a couple of of weeks about how the Q1 GDP now number was kind of ping-ponging around, right? Yep. Started low, went lower, then spiked up, came dropped a lot, spiked back up again. And then it actually dropped again going into the last couple of days of the quarter. So it actually closed at just 1.1%. Which uh, is right where the GDP report was. They nailed yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and then uh and then just so one, I want to let folks know we know the answer now to Q1 GDP, it's 1.1% growth. Uh, not great. Um, and then right now they're they're starting GDP now for Q2. This number is probably going to ping pong around just as much, um, but it's at 1.7 right now, just so folks know what the starting point is. Um, there also was a chart um, I saw that I thought was interesting where it shows um, how uh, it basically survey results of, of consumers saying, hey, I'm, 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 I'm beginning to find higher interest rates or tighter bank credit lending a deterrent to my purchases in some key purchase areas like homes and cars and whatnot. Um, and it's interesting to see these the, these survey numbers have, have been spiking over the past couple of quarters and, and in most cases are still you know on an upward trajectory here. And yeah. to me, this is just a really interesting visualization of the lag uh, that that we see, right? You, you, you raise high, sorry, you hike rates, uh, you tighten credit standards. It's not that the world changes the next day. It takes oftentimes months or quarters for that to really flow through the economy enough for it to really just start to change customer behavior. And I think that this is kind of a good visualization of the, the trajectory of how behavior is getting changed. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's there's definite signs of pressure on consumption. 
but like I said, you take a look at the recent, uh, you know, and what was interesting about that uh, Atlanta Fed now, it kind of collapsed in the last month. It was right around 2.2, went to 1.1 fairly quickly. So, you know, it was, it was almost like spending just kind of hit the break in March. And, you know, something really slowed down pretty dramatically since then. Now, we'll probably see an uptick in spending in April and May because of tax refunds. So, again, it's that time of the year. Also, that's part of what's helped, helping fuel the market right now as well. So as tax refunds come in, people you know may be investing that money. So, um, so it's not uncommon to see April and May tend to be a little bit stronger month. Uh, we do have a sell signal that certainly suggest that's in place right now, but that doesn't mean just because you have a sell signal doesn't mean the market can't rally a bit. Um, but typically, more often than not, when that sell signal is in place, prices are lower over the next month or so. So again, that's why we talked about you know taking a little bit of profit, you know use this rally to take a little bit of profit off right now, raise a little bit of cash, um, you know, and then when you know as we get further into summer, we'll probably have a little bit more of a correction here. If the Fed hikes rates uh, next week and they're pretty aggressive about their rate hike in terms of language, uh, we can see the market sell off of it. Wouldn't be surprising at all. Uh, bullish news is is we've clearly broken out of the downtrend from last year. Have retested that have bounced off of it numerous times. We stay above that downtrend line. And we're now four and four and a half percent roughly above the 200-day moving average, which you know, once you're more than 3.3% above the 200-day moving average, that's the end of the bear market. You've never gone back below it once you've gotten higher than that. So there's enough breadth now between where the market is and that 200-day moving average that a retest of that moving average is going to continue to provide support uh, for the rally over the next few months. So again, use corrections as an opportunity to add exposure. Okay, so a couple of really important comments you just made there. Um, one, you said that your models currently still have a sell signal in place, yeah, which is sure. very, very short term, short -term yeah. right? Yep, very short term focused. Um, more importantly, probably, uh, you're saying that, that the markets have gained uh, cruising altitude, yeah. if you will. Right, so that they can they can have some dips and whatnot, but they can still be comfortably in in the up channel. Um, and so, uh, gosh, where to go with this? Um, so, <laughs> I don't really know where to go with it. It's just what it is. <laughs> I mean, it just it just is what it is, and that's a big part of of what you were saying earlier and what you're going to say when we talk about your piece, right? Which is like, hey, don't get too wedded to a conviction because you have to invest in the market that you have, whether you like it or not, whether it makes sense to you or it doesn't. Um, is that uh, we can get more into this in a bit, but but is is that fact changing or impacting your frequently recently stated views on this channel that like, I don't know how we avoid going into a recession later this year, but I just know that technically things don't look so bad. Yeah, no, actually, uh, it's it's funny. I, I'm, I'm in this weekend's newsletter. I'm just I'm about uh, three quarters of the way through writing it uh, today. Uh, so I'll have it out tomorrow. It'll it'll be up on the website in the morning. Um, but but basically, kind of going through. I'm talking about earnings season, not as terrible as it was. But you know, once you start kind of going through earnings and then looking at kind of some of the underlying data, UPS, Paxton Corp, others, you know, there's certainly indications. And again, it, it, it's still. I don't know how you look at all this data, and I'm, I'm going to talk about that in a second. But you take a look at you know the Kansas City Fed Manufacturing Index, Philly Fed, leading economic indicators. You know, all those are certainly suggesting a recession is coming, and yet the market's saying no. 
Um, so you really have a dichotomy of views here and everything that we're looking at is, you know, certainly historically speaking, every time this has happened, you've always had a recession. But here's the caveat that I think we have to consider. Let's talk about employment for just a moment, because I think this will be a, uh, something that we're going to look back at and go, oh, yeah, I missed that or not. But so employment right now is at 3.8, 3.9%, right? We have fairly strong employment data. You and I talk about every week, right? We do a layoff update, right? We mm -hmm. talk about how many people are laying off jobs. And I've, I've got one for this week too. So, yep. Uh, right. and, and so layoffs are, are certainly there. And if we look at jobless claims, those have been rising. Continuing claims have been rising. But one of the things that we may that I, I, you know, I'm always reticent to use the term this different, you know, this time is different because it generally never is. But one potential risk to the employment view that, oh, employment has to spike higher and we're going to have this big recession is, and I look at this from the lens of my own business, right? So in 2020, you know, we shut down the economy, we laid off half of the of the country, right? So we had these massive layoffs. Now, with the exception of technology, right? When technology went on a hiring spree, they just were hiring every, I mean, they were hiring people to basically go fetch bagels and they hired people to assist them fetching bagels. I mean, mm -hmm. it was just ridiculous how many people were being hired by tech companies to do stupid jobs. But those we you know we're seeing a lot of layoffs in those companies, but if we get outside of that and look at more of the small business, the private business, they don't operate that way, right? They don't have these massive amounts of cash flows coming in from you know um, you know outside sources, investment banking, secondary offerings, you know SPAC issuances, those type of things. Most businesses like mine, um, we're running a business, so it's all about profit and loss, and. We hired people going into the pandemic. We didn't hire anybody during the pandemic because, well, we were concerned like everybody else what was going to happen coming out of that. Um, and we've hired some people recently. But here's the problem. You know, we hire the people we hire in our business are the best of the best. We're very excited. We just hired uh, for our financial planning department. We just hired a professor from Texas A&M University. And we are ecstatic. Uh, she's going to be an awesome addition to our staff. And those are the type of people we look for. So when you get an opportunity to hire that person, it doesn't matter what happens economically, we're going to do whatever we can to retain that person, right? So my point about this is there's a lot of businesses that hired people coming out of the pandemic, and they've got good quality labor that they don't want to lose. Because if they lay them off, they may not get them back. And good, good quality labor is really, really hard to come by. So, you know, when you start thinking about it in this term, this is what we call labor hoarding. Companies will hoard labor as long as they can. Now, there may be a point, economically speaking, that they just can't anymore. They're like, man, we're just losing too much money. We've got to go lay off some people. But because of that 2020 event where we had that massive layoff, now, see, we've never had that type of event prior, right prior to a recession, where you laid off a bunch of people, hired them all back, then fired them again. So, <laughs> you know, this time, may, so what my point is, is that one thing we have to consider is that maybe that event and then the issuance of hiring these people back and hiring quality labor, that we may not see this big surge in unemployment that everybody's kind of expecting. And that will certainly have a little bit of an impact 
on the depth of the recession. You know, one thing that causes deep recessions, people lose their jobs, they can't spend money, and there's no jobs to be had. That causes a much deeper recession than going through what could technically be, and I hate to use this term because, again, I'm not saying this time is different. I'm just throwing out an idea to think about, but going through an, uh, going through a, a economic slowdown with full employment. And that's something that, that again, it's just something to consider. I'm not saying that's going to be the case. <laughs> so don't come back to me in six months and go, see, you were wrong. I'm just saying, you know, we have to at least give that some consideration because of that event. And I've been I've been noodling on this for the last you know couple of months because you know we keep seeing these employment numbers come in and jobless claims aren't spiking they're going up a little bit here, but we're seeing those layoffs in very select areas and those were companies that really just went nuts hiring people after the pandemic. All right, well you heard it here, folks. Lance Robert predicts <laughs> no a no landing recession. It's all no. going to be sunshine and roses. It's no, no, be- I, it's, yeah. it, 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 it's a good. I'm going to say devil's advocate to think about. Um, it's a harder thing to to measure uh, simply because all the layoffs that we read about in the paper are de facto big brands that people know about, right? They're they're not writing about the sandwich shop down the street, right? Um, I, I will say, corroborating your point there, um, some of these recent, I don't think it was Philly Fed, but, but one of these recent reports like that, uh, regional reports came out and said, hey, one of the biggest issues that the, you know, the businesses in our area are reporting is the challenge of finding good labor, yeah. right? So the labor market is still pretty tight uh, at this point in, in a lot of places, right? Yeah, um, and that's what I'm saying. And with small businesses, that's a real challenge. And in my business in particular, we have great employees and, you know, we'll take, you know, the partners will take pay cuts before we fire people at this point, because we just can't get these people back. Right, right. Well, in your case, it's really hard because you have to find somebody who's willing to work with Lance Roberts. I mean, the, the, exactly. That's talk about a needle in a haystack. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's why they don't. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, j- just to hit you with the other side of the argument for yeah. a second. Um one, uh, just to refresh folks that that didn't watch the interview that we did last week with Michael Kantrowitz, he has the HOPE framework. The E is employment. That's the the, the final stage of the HOPE framework. Uh, to your point, Lance, you know, he, he has said we have not seen employment degrade to the point yet where, you know, you expect that fourth domino to topple. So to your point, like it hadn't happened yet. And until it happens you really shouldn't put your money necessarily on on a hard landing recession coming anytime in the near future. Once yeah. it does, obviously, it's game on. Um, so he basically just said, look, I, I don't know if and when it's going to topple. I'm just telling you, I'm going to be watching it real closely. And when, it, when I see employment start to get uncomfortably high, then I'll let you know, right? Um, that being said, um, uh, layoffs continue. Um, I will mention a couple of names just just to sort of show the scale and the the fact that it's not just in certain sectors. It's pretty much everywhere now. Um, these are bigger companies, so they don't disqualify your point about small business, which is the majority of the job creation in, in the country. I do, though, want to say two things. One, I, I had a, a great interview with Darius Dale this week, and he made the comment that that the Fed has indirectly uh, projected a recession. And, and the, the, the reason why he says that is because he says, by the Fed's own projections, they are projecting um, youth unemployment as measured by U3 mm-hmm. to be at 4.5% by December of this year. And if you look at history, 
U3 hasn't been that high except in previous recessionary periods. Yeah. Not saying that means a recession is coming, but it's yeah. an interesting point. You clearly have a comment to it. Yeah, yeah. No, he, the Fed has not indirectly made that comment about a recession. Jerome Powell has said, we expect a recession, period. He said this. And, and, and one of the fascinating facts about that, and, and you know this going back in the 90s and in 2000 and in 2007, you never had a Federal Reserve official come out and say, we expect the potential of a recession. You never, never, ever, never, never, ever, ever. And so the fact that they would, that Jerome Powell actually said that. Um, and again, you know, you have to remember that if the, what the Fed says is how the market reacts. So if the Fed came out and said, man, we really, you know, kind of messed up on monetary policy and we can't fix this and it's going to be a bad recession. I mean, everything would just seize up tomorrow and you'd have a recession. The fact that they've been dry, they started out talking about, well, we might have a recession, it could be, and now they're getting more adamant that it's it's likely we're going to have a, at least a, a, a light recession. You've never heard a Fed, Fed official say that. So again, it, it, you know, the fact that they're prepping markets for this, and again, this is how the Fed works, right? The Fed drops these little balloons so the market can adjust. And you know, last weekend's newsletter was talking about rolling recessions and how the markets had time between these events, Russia, Ukraine, IPO SPACs, um, you know, that fallout, then we have the bank crisis, and these things have been spread out enough that the market takes a hit, is able to recover, the next hit comes, the market's able to recover, and it prices this stuff in. So that's one thing that's alleviating that big downside flush that everybody keeps expecting, is because these hits keep coming with enough space to allow the markets to adjust for it. And the, and the Fed's been doing a good job of dropping these hints in the market and letting the market adopt that idea of a mild recession. Now, the markets aren't ready for a break, like a, a big credit-related break. Right. But if it is just a slight slowdown in the economy, the market's priced that in already. Yeah. And of course, then the question becomes slight or heavy. You yeah. know, I, won't, I won't repeat it all, but the Kantrowitz, he's, he's got all the factors for what determines a soft landing or a hard landing. Spoiler no, alert. Everything we're seeing is hard landing right now, but that's and, know, the, and the market and, and look, markets have not priced in the earnings decline that is necessary for a hard landing. They've priced in a mild recession in terms of an economic earnings slowdown. They have not priced in an earnings slowdown for an actual kind of run-of-the-mill, you know, real recession. Yeah. Right. Now, a credit crisis event, nobody's priced that in yet. Right. So that's a issue. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So what, one more point on this theme. Um, Capital One CEO Richard Fairbank, um, he had some pretty sobering words. And remember, Capital One is it's a massive credit card company. It sees consumer spending. Uh, he says the following. He says the delinquency rate for customers um, at least 30 days late on payment rose 134 basis points from one year earlier, up now to 3.66%, reaching the highest level since March 2019. So delinquencies are going up, as you said earlier. But then he said this, we are assuming a material worsening of labor markets with the unemployment rate rising from today's very low levels to above 5% by the end of 2023. We're also assuming adverse effects from inflation and some further worsening of consumer profiles from the flip side of their extraordinary outperformance in the earlier period during the pandemic. I thought that was really sobering. 
Um, yeah. I mean, to be to be calling for unemployment above 5% in basically, what, seven months? That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, but that's what the Fed's been projecting, too. So all he's basically repeating is what the Fed's been saying, right? So, so again, the markets are pricing that in already because that's been pretty much the Fed, kind of the Fed mantra really since last year was unemployment between 4 to 5%. Take a look at their projections, inflation remaining high, but coming down at the end of next year. Uh, growth actually slowing to sub 2%. You know, their long-term growth rate's now 1.7%. So, you know, all the, again, this is my point. You know, the markets have had all this to feed on. And so markets have been pricing this stuff in. And that's- Do you the, think markets are really pricing in a 5% unemployment rate? Yeah, so far. Because when did that happen? We're at 41 something right now. I know, I know. <laughs> How was that priced in? Well, it was, it was last year, right? So you had the big earnings decline. Um, you, again, we, we dropped estimates by $50 a share. Estimate now, now, now look, I'm just telling you what the markets are doing. You know, you take a look at earnings estimates, they're still massively above long-term trend growth lines. So, you know, in terms of expensiveness of the market and the ability for companies to maintain profit margins at these levels, earnings at these levels, are really, really difficult to justify because you don't have $5 trillion worth of liquidity being pumped into the markets like you did last uh, in 2020. But having said that, you still have a lot of money in the system, right? M2 as a percentage of GDP is still extremely high. So that circulation of money is still sitting out there. And the markets are seeing that come in. You know, sales, uh, sales for companies aren't terrible. Revenue for companies, you know, have, have you know, met estimates, in some cases exceeding estimates, again, much lower, right? They're getting over these lower bars, but it's not been terrible. So this is allowing that market to adjust for these outcomes because things aren't just falling off the cliff and the markets are get, having enough time to adjust for kind of the realities of the coming. You know, think about it, it's, it's the old, you know, boiling a frog in water, right? And, you know, the, the things are happening slow enough that it's allowing the markets to adjust for these more negative outcomes without just completely falling off the cliff. I hope, you know, that, I hope that makes sense. Um, it, it, it does, it does, I get it. But I'm gonna ask this partially for me, but for other viewers that might be wrestling with the same, which is, so as you said, uh, earnings have come down over the past year, what S&P earnings was like 220 something to 175 bucks a share? Uh, 225 to 171. Okay. And when when was 225 last? Last May. Last May. Last May. Okay. And the S&P is down how much in that interim period? Um, we're down from January of last year. We're down, I think we're down like 12% now. Okay. Like yeah. but, we were, but we were down 20 at uh, 18 with you know total return basis. We were down 18% uh, at the end of 2022. Yeah, yeah. But my point though is, is we're we're down, and I guess if I do the math in my head from what you just said, it's fifty. No, I mean it's not quite as much. It's we're not the S and P is not down as much as earnings estimates have come down, right? Correct. Yeah, and so you know, I just I don't know. I I I, I just sort of wonder, like, well, where is the repricing then? You know, <laughs> like, shouldn't it shouldn't it be lower from here, right? Well, technically, it, it should, right? Um, but but again. You know, remember, markets price forward expectations, not trailing expectations. Mm -hmm. So you had the sell off last year and now forward expectations are rising. So, again, from an investment standpoint, I'm buying future cash flows and the future cash flows are improving. 
I want to buy that now because I want to get, you know, I want to get in early to get those future cash flows, right? So that's the mentality of the herd, right? So that's kind of what's going on. I mean, you know, and again, over the last couple of days, markets are starting to kind of get this sense that, you know, the markets have, you know, are, are starting to stabilize here. The economic data is, is very low, right? So one thing that you've also got to factor in is we've had big declines in a lot of this economic data. At some point, that's going to trough. And as we talked about before, there's simply right. a function that at one some point you're going to just you're going to run out of stuff, and you're going to have to re, you know inventory was a big drag in the GDP report. Well, eventually people are going to run out. We had all this excess inventory from 2022, right? Everybody stocked up after the pandemic. And we've been selling all that inventory down. But at some point, you're simply going to run out of inventory and you're going to have to go buy more inventory, right? There's always going to be some demand. It may be less demand, but there's still going to be demand there. And at some point, you're going to get low enough on inventories that you just simply have no choice but to go buy something. And that's going to start economic activity again. And so that's what markets are trying to figure out. They're trying to price that in, in terms of how far have we come? Have we come enough? And, and look, there's a, there's a good argument that we haven't. There's good arguments that this market's got another 10% to the downside this summer. And that wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, but, you know, we've got to also start realizing we've been in 12, you know, 15 months now of a pretty negative economic environment. And those periods will end. The question is, is, is and we are getting to the longer stretch of that kind of negative economic environment. Those environments last between 12 and 24 months and we're 15 months into this. So we're getting onto the other side of just where the normal economic trough of, of an economic downturn will occur. Yeah, and I think this is a really important point. Um, so, you know, you can see Lance that my brain is wrestling with the, we haven't seen the reckoning that I feel the data has been telling us that we should have, right? And I know that you share that in many ways, but you've got the seasoned experience of, of somebody who's managed capital in the markets for decades and said, hey, look, you know, these markets, they 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 have cycles to them and they they behave in certain ways. And what I hear you saying is, is people who get too convicted, uh, and we'll get to your piece in just a moment, um, they could be potentially at risk for what happened to a lot of people coming out of 2008, right? right. Which is to say, hey, I, you know, we we papered over the problems. We didn't do any real structural reforms that that addressed the key issues that created, you know, the, the financial crisis. And you know, pretty quickly, stocks and housing, you know, within a couple of years, were kind of back up uh, near their 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 2007 highs, right? And people were like, well, we're just right back to the the bubble top, right? I mean, clearly this is going to roll over again. And then we had basically, you know, nine more years of the market just hitting new highs year after year after year. And, and you missed all that, right? That's and right. so you're basically just saying, you know, look, you got to be, you got to be conscious to the fact that markets have these cycles. We're pretty far into a, a down cycle. And at some point, it's going to bottom. The market's going to snip that out early. It's going to start taking off faster than you expect. And then you could very well get stuck in that same, well, it's moved so much now, I got to wait for it to come back down. And then it you know, may not, right? So yeah. you're, just, you're just telling us to be, you know, not convicted. Well, and it's kind of like, you know, those, you know, I, I love, I love espionage movies and, 
I like I like you know shows where you know there's some criminal that's being chased or whatever. I love that kind of stuff, right? That you know where there's a really smart criminal at work of some sort, and you know, and, and this is kind of the idea. You kind of almost got to approach this as like one of the, the you know the CIA agents or the FBI agents in these movies. And you've got you've got this you've got this evidence that you're working with, and you know clearly on the murder weapon, you know I've got the fingerprints of the culprit. I've got you know I've got the murder weapon in my hand, and all the evidence points to this one particular individual. But as we go through the movie, we figure out that well the fingerprints were planted, and the evidence the DNA was planted, and it really wasn't this guy. It was this whole shadow organization over here. Say I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, you know, but that's the way you've got to approach this market is that we've got to take look the the it's really easy to take the 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 anecdotal evidence that we have we can take all these little individual pieces of evidence and say oh yeah the, you know every time this happens there's a recession because that's what the evidence says um all i'm saying is is that just because the evidence says that this has to happen it doesn't necessarily mean it has to happen and we have to to be able to parse through this data and say what's keeping the economic recession from happening. Well, what's different? Right? We have a two as a very high, but liquidity. You know, we have a liquidity index that we track. Um, I was on uh, Charles Payne yesterday talking about this very thing. That index has turned down. And that suggests lower asset prices as that liquidity index is declining. Now that hasn't happened yesterday or today, but there's not those don't particularly move in lockstep. Markets can do things that are really irrational short term, but liquidity index says lower prices over the next couple of months, which is why you know we have a sell signal. We've talked about raising some cash. That doesn't mean sell everything. It just means take take some profits and raise a little bit of cash. Kind of hedge yourself a bit, rebalance risk. I think we'll have a better buying opportunity at some point this summer, but we'll also have more data. So every time we go through these kind of buy and sell cycles in the market, we keep piling up more and more data, more and more evidence that's pointing us to the real culprit of the the, the economic environment that we've got. Yeah. Um, so, look, I understand there's going to be some people who have been long-term watchers of this channel saying, one week you guys are bullish, and then I, the next week you sound bearish, and now Lance is <laughs> making me think that the market's never going to correct again, and we're not going to have any landing and all that. Yes, yes, the market is going to correct again. It's not going to go down 30%, but it is going to correct, and you'll have an opportunity to put some money to work. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, so, but what I, what I want to reiterate is what we sort of said coming into this year, Yep. is it was going to be the year of the audible right mm -hmm. it was going to it's probably going to look very different at, at, at from month to month maybe even times at week to week and the year yep. has certainly proved that true so far um uh it's frustrating it is frustrating i'm going to ask you obviously about your trades in a little bit um yeah. but but maybe before i ask about the specific trades like just like, like how are you approaching managing in this environment where I am sure, like you said last week, you said, look, you know, we sit down around the table and we said, who wants to be the bull, argue the bull side? And everyone's <laughs> like, I don't want to, you know, it seems like the losing case, right? But it, to, to your point, like, you know, sometimes Blofeld wins, right? Yeah. You know, even if you-, you... <laughs> No, 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 that, that's a great example, right? Blofeld wins sometimes, but he always loses in the end, right? 
eventually he always gets caught. It may take a couple of movies to catch Blofeld, but eventually he gets caught, right? So, you know, just because the evidence that you have in front of you doesn't work out right now doesn't mean it won't either. You know, again, there's, you know, is there a potential of a deep recession later on this year? Sure, absolutely. That's, there's a risk of that. You know, the one thing that it's going to take for us to have a, a, you know, for those that are hoping for a 35% decline and like, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, we're going to have this big, you know, repricing of risk, you need a credit event. Um, a credit event is nothing that we have economically right now. It, it, you know, so what I mean by that is, is that and we talked about this last week with the Lehman moment. There's anything that you can think of right now, the market is already aware of it. That's already priced in. What the market hasn't priced in is some event that right. nobody's thought about. Something that nobody thought of and has thought yeah. of. It. Yeah. Exactly. And, 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 you know, it could be, uh, you know, it have to be and it would have to be something big. Right. It have to be uh, Goldman Sachs. Right. Going under. You know, that type of thing, that's not going to happen, by the way. But, you know, it, it's got to be something so shocking that the entire market literally just shuts down. That's where you get that big 35% decline. Outside of that, you know, we're going to have another 5 to 10% correction probably this year. And if we do, I'd buy it. Okay. And, and yeah, let me, let me ask about that, too. So um, you guys have had more cash this year than I think you normally yeah. do. Right. Ever. Okay, yeah, right. We've had more cash this year since 2008. Right. Yeah. And, and I would I, I would bet that a lot of people watching this channel who manage their own money have probably done the same. And they yep. probably also bought more T-bills than they'd ever had before, too. Um, as you rightly said, you know, that's not a destination. Right. If you're looking to build your wealth over time, you know, through investing, sitting in cash all the time sitting in T-bills all the time is, is, is not the way to get there over the course of your investing horizon. You, you have to begin to put that money to work. Obviously, you want to do that when the risk-return ratio looks favorable, right? right. Um, so, uh, you know, how, how will you be making that? So wait, let, me ask, let me ask this, uh, or let me put it this way. I, I interpret what you're telling people is to, you know, like be actively vigilant about, that risk return ratio, because there may indeed become opportunities, even this year, right? While there's mm -hmm. still sort of a specter that, yes, there could be a deep recession coming, until we see some really big indicators that it's coming soon, there's going to be opportunity to put some of that cash to work. Not all of it, but put some of that cash to work in a better way than just having 50 plus percent of your, your wealth just, just parked. Right. Well, no, like, you know, earlier this year, we bought more Microsoft. This example, we, we, we like what they're doing as a company. So there's those opportunities. Microsoft had a big decline. We bought Amazon back last year, you know, stuff like that. Right. Um, this year, we've been doing a lot more trading where in February, we wrote an article talking about, hey, you need to take money off the table. We got sell signals. In March, we said, hey, time to put money back to work. And, you know, we bought some index ETFs to trade that rally. And we took those off over the last you know couple of weeks. You know, and because we're back on sell signals, and and that's really going to be a big chunk of the of the of what this year looks like. Now, if we get another five or ten percent correction, we pull back towards some level of, of of good support for the markets, get the markets really good and oversold. Um, we'll probably take our allocations back to full weights, um, as you know, depending on what the environment looks like at that point. 
But if we get a good blow off in the market that gives us an opportunity to buy some oversold assets that are still in bullish uptrends, we'll want to actually, we, you know, we'll definitely want to add those uh, into our portfolio for sure and get that capital put to work. Because as long as markets remain in a bullish trend, we want to participate with that rally. Because again, at some point, you know, my, my clients will forgive me this year if I underperform because, you know, there's so much uncertainty. We're having this conversation right here back and forth. They'll forgive me this year. You know, uh, when we go to have our, we just had client dinners for the last two days, um, you know, just, you know, meeting with people, going over stuff and et cetera. And, you know, we're going to be doing a lot of these this year. We're, we've got a whole slate of, of client appreciation events that we're putting together to go meet with our clients, get in front of them, talk about what's going on in the markets, because it's a very turbulent time. Um, I wish we could do it for every one of our clients. We've got other stuff that we're doing for everybody. But, you know, it's just, this is a time where you need more touch with, with clients. And this is why we send out, you know, emails to our clients every Monday, every Tuesday. We have daily market commentaries. We have weekly newsletters. I mean, we flood our client base with information, you know, every week to keep them on top of what we're doing, because this is going to be a year of a lot of uncertainty. But if I underperform this year, they'll forgive me because, you know, hey, it's a tough market. If I underperform next year and the markets are, are, are strong and I underperform next year, they're not going to forgive me. Um, because, again, you know, everybody in the world looks at their portfolio performance from one year to the next. They don't look at it over a longer term time frame. So once you start to underperform for very long, you're going to start losing clients to other other managers. And that's just the, that's what I talked about earlier. It's called career risk. Um, the, that's just the nature of the beast. That's the way that the, the money management works. And despite what people say, they can say I'm extremely conservative and I don't want to take any risk in the markets. But as soon as the markets are up 10 or 15 percent, they're calling you up going, why am I not in the market? Well, because you told me you didn't want any risk. You know, so that's the that's the challenge and why we have to navigate markets, because we a we love our clients. We want to make sure our clients reach our reach their goals. And, you know, sitting in cash isn't going to get them there. But you know what they're depending on us to do is to navigate these markets with at least with the least amount of risk possible. But they still expect us to perform with the markets, and that's what we have to deliver. Yeah, um, it's great insight to your you know your role it's, there, and, and 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 but but it, you know it's like I I feel the frustration yeah. of what I think most people watching this video are. They're just like God, it's so freaking complicated, right? Like you know. Yeah. I, a lot of people are like, look, I just don't like the game. So I want to sit on the sidelines. Right. And and I've had a I've had a complaint for for past decade plus, which is that the the Federal Reserve and the other central banks, they, they basically removed the sidelines as a safe place to be. Right. Because you couldn't get any return. Right. And so um, a lot of people, especially those who were older and were expecting to live off a of fixed income or whatnot, it was almost like a a sword at your back out on the pirate, you know, ship plank, right? Just forcing you out the risk curve, right? And um, and and now, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, you can sit in safety and get paid, right? You can get paid, you know, near 5% on a T-bill, which is great. But th the only reason you can do that is because the central banks unleashed or assisted in unleashing all this inflation, Yep. And you're still not getting a real return yet on that, right? <laughs> like, no, so, and, so safety still isn't great, right? Right. But no, look, if you get 4% on a money market, that's not bad, right? But I call it Gilligan's Island because it's a three hour tour. You know, you know, it, this is going to be a very short, you know, this little stint on the sideline where, oh, right. I have to go cash, you get 4%. 
that little stint on the sideline is not going to last very long. Rates are going back to zero with the Fed either late this year or next year, but they're going back to zero at some point. And it's just a function of time we get there because you can't have as much debt as we have and as much debt issuance as we need with high interest rates. Rates have to come down because our whole society is built upon cheap debt. 30% of the Russell 2000 depend on debt refinancing just to stay in business. They can't do that at 5% interest rates. It's just not going to happen. Right, right. So, um, and obviously that's a reason, big reason why your firm is, has been pretty bullish on bonds. And, and, you know, Michael has been saying, look, I think the, the peak's already behind us. Pretty good time to lock in some of these rates on lower, longer duration uh, bonds because, they're not going to be around for very long, right? You want to lock them in and ride the appreciation. Um, just to finish my point, it's I understand the frustration of folks who are looking at this and just saying like, yeah, there's there's like, basically what you're saying is, is you have to really be an active manager of your, your portfolio now, probably more than normal, right? right? Because it's this year of the audible and things are changing and whatnot, right? And if you just do a set it and forget it. If you just go long, right, there's still enough risk in here that you can get punished badly in these drawdowns. And if you just go to the sidelines, as you said earlier, you know, there's a chance of getting left behind if we stay in the sub channel and we don't break it, break break through it to the downside. Right. So um, I understand people's frustration who may not necessarily want to have to be an active manager and to have to follow the markets as closely as you and I do every week on this channel, but that's kind of the market environment we're in, right? And it's almost kind of like, I don't put words in your mouth, but it's almost kind of like, yeah, you got to do it or you got to at least choose somebody to do it for you and make sure you make a good decision when you're picking who's going to do it. But you, it's, there's, not a, there's not a great return profile for the person who's just looking for the set it and forget it solution, whether it's pure safety or whether it's pure long. Well, yeah, you know, you kind of say that though, but you know, outside of just that little bit of a drawdown we had last year, buy and holds worked pretty well since 2009. It's, and that's a, you know, that's a tough thing to say for an active manager, right? But, you know, it's, it, has, it hasn't really hurt anybody to a great degree because we never had that big cataclysmic drawdown. But every, I mean, look, even with the decline we had last year, we're still above 2019 peaks. If you look at a chart of the S&P 500, that 35% drawdown in 2020, it looks like a little blip now because <laughs> the subsequent return out of the market from 20, the lows of 2020 through 2022 was so huge. It completely mitigates that drop off in the markets. It, so, it does. But you're, if you're somebody who ejected from the workforce in 2021 because yeah. you, I'm retiring early because look, my portfolio <laughs> went up. It, it matters to you. Yeah, no, of course. No, I'm, no, I'm not. Uh, look, I'm, I'm not poo-pooing the, uh, you know, saying that, that drawdowns don't matter because you know, we're active managers because we believe drawdowns matter a whole heck of a oh, yeah. lot. No, you're you're Mister. Don't yeah. lose years of your life having to re exactly. regain a drawdown. Yeah. All I'm just saying is is that you know the way this market's behaved since 2009 because of 44 trillion dollars worth of liquidity is you know certainly supports that case that people put out there about just buy and hold investing. Right? Oh, you can't time the markets. Just buy and hold an ETF and and you'll be fine. You know, that doesn't work long term. And if we do get, you know, and going forward, the risk is going to be, and I'm actually writing an article on this but, uh, right now, that future returns will probably approach zero. Because if you do go to 1.7% growth and you don't have $44 trillion worth of liquidity getting pumped into the markets and you don't have stimulus checks to household, where's your returns going to come from? 
Right. Right. So that's the risk going forward. And I think, you know, the problem that we, we have now is if you look at the market this year, this kind of just up, down, sideways, churn, you know, just grinds you through the mud type, you know, market, this could be the market we're in for the next several years where there's not a lot of upside, there's not a lot of downside, but there's a whole lot of chop in the middle. So we're just going to be forced to trade this, um, you know, much more tactically than, than, than normal. And, you know, buy and hold won't make any money. You're going to have to actually manage this markets over the next, you know, three to five to 10 years. Okay, good. Well, the, this is a good segue. I'm going to jettison a lot of the other stuff I had just in the interest of time. Um, but this is a good segue into your recent piece on conviction. Um, specifically, your article was titled Conviction or How to Lose a Lot of Money in Investing. Um, like I said, you, you have some great sort of general investing axioms at the end. But before we get to those, what, what, are, what are the key parts of the article you'd like viewers to take away with them? Yeah, well, it's it's the idea that, you know, and again, we we talked about it on on you know the the ju the gist of the article came from you actually um, because we were talking about these things here, which is you know it's really easy to listen to all the information and and you know and one thing I try to do with you is is you know every week we try to talk about both sides you know the, the bearish side we try to talk about the bullish side and we try to 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 bring these together because. You know, the biggest risk we run as an investor is getting trapped in what we call confirmation bias. In other words, I you know, I listened to Adam and Adam said that, oh, there's all this negative data. And so we're going to have this massive re recession. So I'm going to go put all my money in, in, you know, gold or beanie weenies or whatever it is, because I don't want to be in equities because equities are, are surely going to crash. And then, you know, you get me on here and I'm like, look, markets are going up. We got to do this. And everybody goes, Lance, you're crazy. Didn't you hear what Adam said about all this data, right? And so that's why you and I, have, and that's why I enjoy doing this this with you every week because we can debate, you know, these points and and all your points are correct, and yet the markets are doing something entirely different. So how do we blend this together? And that's the whole point of this article. And I go through a couple of of convictions that people have had, you know, over time. Coming out of two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, that was when we established this whole idea of the BRICS, which were Brazil, India, China, Russia, and that was going to be, you needed to have all your money in the BRICS because they were just going to dominate the world over the next decade and just crush the S&P. You didn't want to be in domestic stocks. You needed to be in BRICS and emerging market businesses. And, and they had moments, right? They had moments where they rallied pretty well. But if you'd invested in BRICS back in 2009 or the S&P, the S&P slaughtered them. Um, you made you you lost a lot of your retirement potential investing in bricks versus investing in the in the markets. Same thing is is that you know a lot of financial advisors they want to put you in just to a diversified basket, right? I really can't manage the market, so what we're going to do is we're going to buy a little of everything, and hopefully that'll all work, right? And this is the the Harry Markowitz you know portfolio modern portfolio theory from the nineteen seventies, right? So I have some real estate, I got some. Emerging markets and international, small cap, mid cap, large cap. If you did that, you vastly underperformed just buying the S and P five hundred. So the point of of the of the article is saying, look, convictions are fine, but be convicted to what is working in the markets and invest accordingly. And if it's not working, do something else. <laughs> there's you know there's the old you know the old adage that you know you say you keep trying something over and over again. It's the definition of insanity. Well, right. Same thing with investing. 
just be and, and look, there's there's moments in time that gold have been great investments, right? In the 1970s, gold was awesome, killed the S&P 500. And then it did nothing for 20 years and all your money was made in the S&P 500. And then that's gone back and forth over time. And so there's there's moments in time to own every every asset class has its moment in time. The, the what is important as an investor is understanding what time you're in. And that's a big challenge. You know, uh, Peter shifted, and I have this down the article a bit, but Peter shifted an article talking about using suits as a measure for how gold protects, you know, for inflation going back to 1900. And he's right. You know, if you put your money in gold, 1900, you could, you, it grew over time and you could buy more suits with the same purchasing power parity of, of a dollar. But if you put the same money in the S&P 500, you could buy 15 suits versus two. So which was a better investment for you over time in, in your portfolio? Now, there's points in time, again, that, you know, again, gold was a much better investment than the S&P. It's just understanding what those periods were, because here's the one most important fact. We don't live 120 years or 123 years. It doesn't matter what it did back in 1900. It doesn't really matter what it did in 2000. Because if you were in 50, 55 or you're 55 now, you've only got 10 or 15 years, whatever it is, until your retirement. So if you make the wrong, if your conviction about whatever it is, is the wrong conviction for this 10 or 15 year time frame, it's going to damage your portfolio returns and it's going to damage your financial goals. So the whole point of the article is, is just to say, be careful. I'm not saying don't be convicted, right? You, you're more than welcome to do it. I'm just saying be careful about conviction because it can really damage the outcomes of your financial plan if you choose the wrong conviction based on some piece of data or what you heard on the media or whatever it is. Don't listen to me either because I could very well be wrong. And you know, the one thing with me is, is that once I realize I'm wrong, I'm going to change it. And that's what we have to do as investors. Yeah, this kind of sounds in a nutshell to me like the old Reagan approach. Uh, strategy of trust, but verify, yeah. right? You come up with your hypothesis and you say, okay, this is going to be my primary investing thesis, right? But I'm going to watch it all the time. And if the data is suggesting that my thesis might be wrong, you know, I'm going to change course, right? Where, yeah. where too many investors, they, they, they don't do that. They go with the conviction and they don't really assess whether it was right or it was wrong until they have the final results. And of course, by that time, you know, you've either made a ton of money, gone nowhere, or lost a lot, but there's not much you can do about it at that point. That's exactly right. Look, you know, and 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 sometimes and the biggest, you know, the challenges that we have as investors is always our psychology. And the one, you know, the one big psychological challenge that I have, and I know Adam has this for sure, um, because I know Adam. Um, but you know, this is what most investors have is that once we think we're right about an idea, we're going to ride that idea until it dies. <laughs> you know, it's like, I know it's not working now, but it's going to work, you know? And, and that's because as human beings, we don't like being wrong. We don't want to admit that we were wrong. And that's the one skill that we have to do as investors is to be, have that willingness it doesn't mean that you're stupid, you're an idiot, that you, you know, it just means that whatever thesis that you had at the time, the environment changed. I'm going to give you a good example. Meta. I was on the show with Adam back in the 
October of last year, and we bought Meta in our portfolios the two days before their earnings announcement. We looked at that stock and we said, you know what? Um, that company is so beaten up and this thing trades at nine times earnings. You know, I think all the bad news is priced in. And we bought this, we bought a very small, it was like 1%. And, and then it, then it crapped the bed, right? <laughs> and, and they missed earnings. The stock was down 20% and we got stopped out and we didn't get back in. That's a, see, that's where we made a mistake. And in, and that was a, it, it didn't kill our portfolios, but there was an opportunity we missed because we got stopped out and we should have waited our 30-day period and bought it back because the value-based philosophy of our decision was right. The price action was wrong. And we listened to the price action rather than our fundamental statement. So we allowed our conviction to be broken by the fact that price action was different. And that was a mistake. We should have stayed with our conviction in that particular value basis and either hung with it or you know bought it back at some point we didn't do it but so at this point at some point we're going to have to make that decision do we buy the stock back 150% higher the answer is going to be no but there's other, <laughs> stuff, there's other stuff to buy now we just missed that trade but this is my point uh, you know about things is that you know you know last year the average retail investor lost 35% of their portfolio the market was only down 20 how did they lose more money than the markets? Because they were convicted to bad stocks. They were like, oh, this is a great company, you know, Roku, whatever it is, it's going to come back. And those stocks were down 60, 70, 80, 90%. And, and like uh, Pinterest on Friday, um, other, some of these other, you know, kind of high flyers of, of, of you know, the, the 2019s and 2020s, they were slaughtered on Friday because they're still missing earnings. And they don't have the growth model. They don't have the earnings model to support the valuations, even at these depressed price levels, but being convicted of those stocks is costing you a lot of money because the thesis is wrong and, and you've got to change your idea about that. So again, it's it's not one asset or another, it's just understanding, you know, what is your thesis? How convicted are to, to it are you? And have the facts changed that you're not considering? That's the thing you've got to evaluate. All right, um, I couldn't agree more, I think it's super, super valuable that we're kind of hammering this point home for people. Maybe the horse carcass is a bit bloody at this point, but it's such an important <laughs> point. And, and, and I, I mean, being transparent. Yeah. I, I've, I've been a uh, victim of my convictions in the past. Um, honestly, one of the reasons why I created wealthy on was to try to address that, right. Which was just to get a constant stream of different perspectives on this program so that, you know, I and our viewers don't fall in love with any particular uh, projected outcome. Yeah. Now, granted, you know, when we have a lot of the people sort of sing from the same song sheet, I think it does give us maybe a little bit more confidence that a particular conviction might be more likely if you have a lot of smart people with different methodologies coming up with it. But you always have to keep your eyes open and your ears open to other points of view, like you and I have talked about a lot here. I guess I'd say one challenge I have is um, th there's a there's a difference between um, perseverance um, and stubbornness. Yeah. Right. And, <laughs> that's, that's, and, and it can be a, a fine line and a hard line to discern. And, you know, perseverance can be a very valuable trade in investing. Right. So, for example, um, you, you, you could have gone back into that Facebook trade saying, no, no, no. You know, we're, we, even though we just got burned when we touched the stove this time. Um, 
we've looked at the data and we still believe that this is really an even better value now that the the stock got hammered in that that earnings report right um that's where perseverance can reward you right but sometimes you know staying into a trade for too long you know and we've all done it um can be the absolute surest way to lose the most amount of your money so so how do you as a capital manager discern between the two well you know so when you know we have it so whenever we're buying a company right um we have perseverance in our thesis that you know based on fundamentals or whatever it is that you know this is going to be a company that will make us money you know long term just because of of cash flows and earnings and those type of things and you know the, the Meta is a good example uh, of this. Is that they were they were bleeding capital. They're still bleeding capital. They're they're even though they announced earnings, you know, for the first quarter that beat estimates, they're still losing three billion a quarter on this whole metaverse idea. And the question is, are they ever be able to get that to turn around? Um, so that's that's a little bit different. You know, we were looking at that company going, hey, maybe all the bad news is really kind of priced in, and seemingly right now maybe it is, but you're still bleeding a whole lot of capital on this idea that may or may not ever come to fruition, as opposed to a company like CVS, which healthcare company, we're all getting older, we're all spending more on medications, you know, they're, 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 they've got multiple product lines, they're in the healthcare with that now. Um, they grow earnings every year, they traded a 0.29 times price to sales with a 3.5% dividend. I can hold that stock right now and get paid for it while I'm waiting for that that price appreciation to work out for me. But even with that, we have price levels to where we just simply will have to say at some point, I can't take any more downside on that stock. I'll come back to it later, but there's clearly something I am missing in my analysis that has proved me wrong or something will come out in earnings or you know in the news that say, okay, my analysis was based on, you know, some event to happen and that event is not happening now. So that will change that. So I can I can persevere uh, with a price decline in a position as long as the underlying fundamentals and the thesis remain intact. But as soon as that thesis is broken, then we have to make a different decision. Well, I tell you, it sounds like it, 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 the thesis is broken, meaning, oh, we were investing in it for cash flows and they've just cut their dividend or whatever, right? That breaks the thesis. But I also hear you saying, there's also just sort of some performance, you know, thresholds I have to have in here that just say, look, if this thing is just going nowhere or, or, or leaking and it just leaks for way longer than we thought we could, we're going to cut bait too, right? Yeah, well, no, not if it's if it's just going nowhere, I'm okay with that because I'm getting paid three percent, right, or three and a half percent in this case with CVS, right? So I'll I'll just it can sit there and do nothing for a period of time um, as long as I'm getting paid. But if it just keeps going down in price, I've got to start re like, what does everybody else know that I'm missing? What is it that I'm missing? Because obviously, remember, the market's a market. It's buyers and sellers. And if the whole crowd is selling it and you're the only guy going over here is like, I'm buying it. <laughs> you know, at some point, you've got to ask yourself, where, what did I miss? I, I have missed something in my analysis. What is it? And yeah, it that's, and that's, and that's where I was kind of going with, now. which is like, and you may not find the answer to that question. All you might Correct. know is that it's just not performing the way that you need to. Where I'm going with this is, yep. what I hear sort of saying is, is, is when you buy, you also at the same time need to set, yeah, my thesis is X, but here are kind of my thresholds where I need to eject if this thing's not going my way, right? 
Yeah, absolutely right. And 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 those can be fairly broad, right? I can I can like for instance, a good example um, in 2020. I have to wait. I have to think back on my dates now, so I may be a little wrong. One, Exxon Mobil, a couple of other energy companies, and we were down 20, 25 percent of those positions because remember at that time oil prices went negative, and you and yep. I were talking on here is like. You know, everybody hates oil because, you know, that's, you know, the, the you know, it's climate change and they're all going to be running out of business. And we're like, no, that's not going to be the case. And ultimately, these are, are great assets with great cash flows. We wind up selling those companies for 50 to 80 percent gains, 100 percent gains in a couple of points. Um, you know, so we went had to go through this period where we were down 20, 25 percent of these holdings. And we but we knew that the cash flows were going to be there. And we just had to wait for the, the market to catch up with our thesis. But if, if those had just kept coming down and, and oil prices didn't recover, we would eventually you know, cut bait on those. But we're willing to give them some fairly decent room to work if we, are, if we have a, a really good assessment of what the underlying fundamentals are. Going back to the meta case as, as a good example, we didn't really know what that case was. We were just assuming that the worst was priced in. They announced earnings missed and they were down 20%. Clearly the worst was not priced in. The market eventually came around to our thesis and our mistake was not buying it back. But that's a different story. But you know, the point there was is that the, the, the premise was based that the worst of the news was priced in and it wasn't. So that's why we gave that one a lot less room on the downside. Well, because your thesis got disproved pretty quickly. Correct. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, great. Um, well, look, uh, in the interest of time here, I'm, I'm going to start wrapping things up. Um, uh, it's too bad we don't have time to go in sort of the, the, the stoicism mindset part because it, it's so germane to what we were just talking about here. I've got time. I've got time. I don't have class today. Thanks. Uh, you're going to get everybody angry with me, but we're we're bumping up against our hour and a half threshold, and I promise people I'm not going to try to go much longer than that. Um, right, as I said, your piece Thanks your piece me. ends with a bunch of of like, um, you know, valuable, like time-honored lessons uh, that you have as a capital uh, manager. Um, I'm just going to tell people to go to your website, uh, realinvestmentadvice.com, read this conviction piece, uh, read the whole piece, but definitely go to the end and, and, and see those nuggets of wisdom that Lance laid out there. Um, I'm not going to read the layoff list, um, except just to note that it, it, these, these are really big brands doing beginning to do really pretty sizable layoffs everything from disney to gap to 3m to tyson foods um ernst and young best buy bed bath and beyond uh declared bankruptcy apple even apple which has pretty much resisted doing layoffs apparently is now beginning to do some strategic ones um so the layoff wave continues to build in fact uh linkedin here says that uh mass layoffs have continued to take their toll across industries the number of job cuts in tech is up 38,487% versus a year ago. And for finance companies, it's up 419%. I mean, those are bonkers numbers. Um, Lance and I already talked about what may or may not happen with, with employment. So I won't go any further except just to say, you know, the layoff wave at this point is still a rising tide. Um, okay, a couple of um, a couple of quick uh free resources for folks to let you know about. And then let's, we'll talk about your trades and wrap things up. Um, you guys, if you've been a long time watcher, you every, you know, 
couple of quarters, I come on when there's a, a holiday coming up where you've got to buy gifts for your spouse. And I talk about the company Over, which is the um, uh, you know 24 karat uh, gold jewelry and sterling silver uh, jewelry company. Uh, Wealthion has some similar investors in both. So I know the CEO there, Gina Love, very well. Um, oftentimes, um, she when a holiday comes around, she does a special offer for the wealthy on audience, she's done one again this season for Mother's Day, which is coming up. Um, so just to let you know, if you want to take advantage of that discount that she's offering uh, to wealthy on viewers, it's 15% off their full price jewelry. Uh, go to over.com and enter the following code um, AU-Wealth-Mom15. Um, and that uh, uh, right now, that's a special offer that will be made available to the general public in a couple of days. But for the next couple of days, it's available exclusively to wealthy on folks. So go forth and take advantage of that if that's of interest to you. Um, and there's nobody better to pamper in life than mom, obviously. Um, and then a reminder, the Strategic Investment Conference, uh, which is that massive uh, macro conference that's put on every year. I had an insert in last week's video talking with Ed D'Agostino of the company that produces the event. Um, that event starts next week. As a reminder, it's a two-week uh, macro conference. I mean, it's it's massive. Like I said, uh, it's five days interspersed over those two weeks, but the first day starts on Monday. Uh, reminder, if you can't watch the whole thing, and I'm sure most people can't live, uh, there's replay videos of all of the presentations that are sent to everybody who registers. So if you're interested in registering for that, just go to wealthion.sic23.com. You can find all the information and you can register there. Um, reminder for folks, um, I'm hosting a panel this coming Monday with uh, Thomas Thornton and Milton Berg. Uh, it's going to be a, fo a panel focused on, on TA and uh, there's a lot going on in their worlds right now. It should be a fascinating discussion. All right, Lance, wrapping up here, tell us about what trades you've made for the week. It sounds like you're lightening up still given that sell signal from earlier. No, no, we actually didn't do any trades this week. Uh, we had uh, sold all of our trading, our index trading positions uh, last week and the week before. Um, again, we're we're so once we triggered the sell signals, we reduced some of our risk. So right now we're we, we're you know we're pretty underweight equity, overweight cash. Um, very interesting though, we are getting very very close to another buy signal on bonds, and there is a huge short position on Treasury bonds right now that is stacking up, which is gonna make uh, for a very interesting trade later on this year in, in uh, long duration bonds. But we've got to get through this debt ceiling first, but I think that opportunity is coming up by the end of summer. Okay, um, all right, super fascinating. So what what needs to happen for you to have a buy signal on T-bills and, and talk about why there's a big short position on them right now? So, um, so this so commercial traders are just like there's a massive short position on equities. And that's one thing really kind of driving the markets right now as well. Is there's just a it, we have the biggest short position on the stock market since 2009. Um, and so again, whenever there's a rally, it causes a lot of short covering in that rally. So a lot of people were negative bonds last year. You've got a lot of traders that are are short bonds for a whole variety of reasons, but you know, concerns about inflation and higher interest rates, you know, they, they, they are, they're hedging their books by being short bonds. When yields fall enough, you're going to trigger a big short covering of those bond positions, which is going to force yields down very rapidly. And that'll occur when the Fed starts cutting rates or you get into an economic recession later this year. Again, um, you know, we talked about last week, this divergence between the one month and the three month uh, T-bills. 
because of the debt ceiling. And that's just, again, bond positions or trade or, you know, bond, bond traders are hedging for a potential, you know, uh, delay of payment on, on debt. But because of the uh, tax receipts right now, the, the, the time, time frame for the debt ceiling uh, push has gotten pushed out to like June or July. So, um, and last week, McCarthy apparently proposed a debt ceiling limit bill. So we'll see how that works out in the next, next couple of weeks. But again, they're gonna hike the debt ceiling. Once that's done, the treasury's gotta issue a lot of debt to catch up on all the payments and refund all the emergency measures they've been using, which could cause a little short-term uptick in rates. But we're gonna be, if that happens, we're gonna be buying long duration bonds on that uptick in rates because that'll probably be the peak in rates for the year. Okay, um, and just a reminder to folks, as we have talked about this a, a bit on, on previous videos on this channel, uh, the because of the debt ceiling, we're at it right now. Uh, Janet Yellen has been taking quote unquote extraordinary measures to fund the government by basically writing checks from the Treasury General account, which is kind of like a savings account for the US Treasury. And once the debt ceiling gets raised, she has to uh, basically by law, uh, she's got to then go refill that Treasury General account by selling Treasury bonds, as Lance just mentioned. Um, so flood of bonds hitting the market, people are basically wanting a, a higher yield on them um, to, you know, take the effort to sop them all up. That's what Lance is talking about here. But Lance, you think that's going to be relatively short lived and that's going to create a buying opportunity, yeah. which you plan to take advantage of. Right. Yeah. So when they issue this debt, theoretically, you should see long duration, you know, 10 year, 20 or 30 years, should, should see those rates tick up a little bit. Um, and again, that'll probably be the peak. That'll probably be one of the, some of the better pricing you're going to get for the rest of this year. Um, because again, if we do, as we start to see the economy slow down more, as the Fed, you know, is trying to hold rates at higher levels for as long as they can, that's going to slow down consumption, slow down economic growth. Um, yields are long duration yields, not the short end, that's Fed, but on a longer duration, that's inflation and economic growth. So those yields are going to start to fall. So any opportunity you get, uh, to start buying, you know, bonds, I would do it because once bond traders are forced to cover, you're going to get a pretty sharp drop in yields, and that should coincide with the onset of a economic slowdown or quote unquote a recession. All right, great. Well, Lance, uh, just another great week, buddy. Thanks so much for hanging with me every week doing this. These are great discussions. Great way to end the week. Um, all right, so just in wrapping up here, folks, um, as Lance and I have talked about many, many times, you know, tough challenging environment for the individual investor. I won't go through my regular uh, dog and pony show here at the end, except just a quick reminder to folks that uh, if that's something you don't want to be navigating on your own, and I think most people shouldn't um, because you have a real life to focus on, right? You got your family, you got your job, whatever. Um, then your, your really big important choice here is to figure out who you're going to partner with to manage your money for you, right? And um, if you've got a good one who takes into account everything we've been talking about here, stick with them for sure. Uh, but if you don't, or if you'd like a second opinion from one who does, perhaps Lance and his team there at realinvestmentadvice.com, uh, then go to wealthion.com, fill out the short form there, schedule a free consultation with these guys, hear what they have to say, and then do it yourself, hand those instructions to your existing advisor, or if you like these guys, keep talking with them. They just do this to help as many people as possible navigate through what's ahead. Um, all right. Well, in wrapping up, folks, uh, real quick, just want to re re remind you of those free resources. Uh, go to avair.com and enter in the code AU-Wealth-Mom15 if you want to take advantage of that special offer that Gina's offering. 
If you want to uh, learn more, perhaps register for the Strategic Investment Conference, go to wealthion.sic23.com. And if you've enjoyed this conversation uh, half as much as Lance and I do every week, do me a favor, support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And Lance, I'm going to let you have the last word as usual. Uh, have a great weekend. We'll see you all back here next week. <laughs> all right. Have a good one, Lance. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.